In 2010, Kate Walinga had a near-death experience, which led her to being housebound for a year. In 2014, Kate broke her back and had to leave her career. In 2019, Kate's father died by suicide. Kate has also battled health issues including epilepsy and deafness. But as she is going to share today, although broken, Kate moves forward. Have you ever felt like giving up, quitting, throwing in the towel? Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Grant. She's an author, health coach, and motivational speaker. Backed into a corner multiple times in her life, Carol shares with you stories on how she overcame some of the toughest obstacles a person can go through in life, but refused to give up hope. Rather than admit defeat, an opportunity was presented, and it involves each and every one of you. Carol will feature spectacular guests who will share their messages of hope, encouragement, and their inspiration to prove why life's adversities only make you stronger. And now, welcoming the host of the show, here's Carol Graham. Kate Walenga spent her professional life in the fields of mental health and criminal justice, specifically in the fields of correctional psych, forensic psych, and crisis assessment. Kate, welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope, and please start with telling us a little bit about your career. Sure. Thank you for letting me come on. I actually started way back in the day studying mechanical engineering because I just wanted a job. I just wanted, you know, I bought into the capitalism mindset. Okay. And a few years in to that, I realized I hate everything about this. I just don't <laughs> like it. Like I'm good at it, but I don't like it. And so I happened, I had an illness in this is, you know, for, for the kids in the audience, books used to be paper format and someone brought me a book while I was in the hospital that was the the book version of the Netflix show Mindhunter uh, which so it's about uh -huh. FBI profiling and the like and I thought this seems fascinating I could do this this seems uh -huh. interesting and I ended up dropping out of engineering altogether and switching oh over to psychology and loved it I ended up not going into profiling because I didn't want to be a law enforcement officer uh -huh. and a lot of profiling is about guesswork and I didn't want to guess. I wanted to actually talk to the people. So I went into forensic psychology instead, which is rather than being out in the field trying to find a perpetrator, forensic psychology is working with someone after they have been uh -huh apprehended basically it depends if, what the job looks like depends on where you live and where you work in the country so where i work sometimes you are hired by the, the prosecution sometimes you're hired by the defense and sometimes you're hired by the state and i was hired by the state so what that means is that i was allowed to come to whatever conclusions i came to i wasn't a hired gun to support the prosecution uh -huh, or uh -huh. the defense's side of things and I liked that a lot. And so I would be brought a question. Is this person competent to stand trial? 
what is their diagnosis? Where can they best be housed after the court case is all done? Those sorts of questions. And that would help me figure out what kind of interview to structure and what kind of tests to use to put together a report. And then I would testify in court about that. So I worked as a forensic psychologist for several years in the state of New Hampshire um, and loved it. It's, it's dark sometimes. It's scary sometimes. But it's also an honor because I was one of the only people within that complex, that prison industrial complex that the inmates dealt with where I wasn't on their side, but I treated them like humans. I wasn't administration, I wasn't a cop, and I wasn't a fellow inmate. I was there to ask them questions and listen to their answers, and it was profound. Sometimes overwhelmingly so, but it was profound. I ended up leaving that job to go into crisis assessment when I had my second child, uh, because kids ruin everything. And so it became this situation of... They, I wasn't seeing my own kids very much. Mm. And so we decided, I, you know, forensic psychology is a nine to five kind of job, but crisis assessment is 24 seven. Oh my goodness. So I could do nights and weekends. My husband is an educator, so he could work days. And then someone was always around the kids. And I did love crisis assessment as well. It's also an honor to be allowed to sit in the room with someone in the moment when they are quite literally at their lowest. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I did for several more years until, until 2014. And then what happened? Well, I got sick first in 2010. I, I got pregnant with my third child, which was kind of a surprise. I wasn't expecting it. It was the, my husband got a job in Boston. And so it was the day the movers showed up to move us from New Hampshire down to Boston. And I found a pregnancy test in the bathroom that, you know, that was while I was packing up and <laughs> some part of my brain said, let's, uh, let's take that for some reason. It turns out surprise. <laughs> uh, oh what do you goodness. know? And so he, so he was an unexpected third kiddo. Cool. Great. Whatever. And someone in the delivery room had strep throat. Oh my word. And there's no way to know who, like, it could have been one of the nurses, could have been the doctor, could have been me. Like, there's mm -hmm. there's no way to be sure. But I had a very slight tear in the process of giving birth, not bad enough to need any medical intervention, but enough that the strep got in my mm -hmm. bloodstream. Oh, my goodness. And I spent the next three days telling the doctors and nurses something's very, very wrong. And they kept telling me, oh, it's just gas pain. Drink more ginger ale. This is my third kid. I know gas pain. Exactly. <laughs> this is not gas pain. And it turns out that the strep had attacked my uterus since my uterus was inflamed, oh. having just given birth. And my uterus had ruptured at the site of a prior C-section. Oh, my goodness. So, you know, gas pain, ruptured organ, same difference, totally same. <laughs> Of course. You know, and so I ended up being airlifted down to Mass General in Boston. I was in a coma for a week and a half. I clinically died three times. And when I came out of the coma, I had almost complete aphasia, which is the inability to recall words. And I built a lot of that back up. But even now, it's been 12 years, and I still 
have to be much more deliberate and thoughtful when speaking, especially if I'm tired or stressed out. And my brain occasionally just mixes up words or, or scrambles them in ways. It's You never know. You never know what's going to come out of my mouth. It's very exciting. And so... <laughs> Good to that warn was, people, right? Right. You know, I just, it's, it's its an adventure inside my head. It really is. Tremendous, tremendous surgical wounds. They, it took them almost a full year to heal. And that's why I was not able to return to work for a full year. I was housebound. Um, I had an 18-inch incision from sternum to pelvis. And I had a grapefruit-sized hole in my abdominal wall wow. on the side. Which I didn't know people could live through that. Like I spent a year really kind of believing that if I sneeze, I'm going to lose my liver out the side or something. Mm-hmm. It didn't happen. Just so people know, mm-hmm. like I still have my liver. But 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 that was a that was an adventure. And going back to work after that was tremendously important for my mental health to re regain, I guess, reattain that feeling of Im- not importance, but relevance to the world i guess or productivity or connection with other humans Mm -hmm. this is what i trained to do and i could go back and do it and that was great then in 2014 uh, i have a i have an autoimmune disorder that my my spine is very brittle it's called ankylosing spondylitis and it's effectively my body has decided I need a second spine. So it, the casual term for it is bamboo spine. And really? I, Interesting. I growing, you know how people have fusion surgeries? Yes, yes, yes. That's effectively what my body is doing on its own. It starts from the tailbone and it works up and it, and it grows this very, very thin, brittle sheath of bone okay. from one vertebrae to the next. And that's what broke for me. And all I did okay. was step wrong on a, on a playground. I didn't even fall down, but it's so brittle and so thin that all I did was step a little too hard and it shattered. And so I, I actually went back to work initially after that because oh. I'm, I was always in pain pain was right it changes who you are it changes Mm -hmm. how you are in the world and so a part of me was like well i know i know how to function through pain let's just go back to work and two weeks later i realized i i can't do this i i cannot be present for my clients for these patients every nerve ending in my body is screaming all at the same time and so that that was a really difficult and sad and heartbreaking decision that i had to make so that was 2014, was, was leaving my job. And that didn't end there, did it? Well, no, it paused. Everything paused for the next couple of years. I don't believe myself that everything happens for a reason. Because I think sometimes terrible things happen, even though you're doing everything right. That being said, I do believe that everything had to happen in the way that it did in order for me to end up where I am. Right. I I think I agree with you there. It doesn't Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yes, yes. It's not karma exactly, mm-hmm. but it's this feeling that like I don't believe in regret. Yes. So I get it. If I had not gotten sick in twenty ten, then we would not have hired a nanny. Because that's not my style. I'm a I was a very hands on mother. It was just that I couldn't literally stay awake on my own. We I needed someone who could drive the kids to a appointments and, and the like. Mm-hmm. So we hired a nanny and she was a good nanny. I, I feel that she needs credit for that. If nothing else, that she understood how we parented and fit well into the family to the point where we had an in-law apartment and we traded, mm-hmm. you know, sort of 
room for right, childcare right. for a while. And then she started to make some questionable decisions toward the end of 2011 or so, right around the time that I had gone back to work. And so we decided we were going to, we, that house was rented. We decided to buy a house. We sort of gave her the thumbs up. Good luck. It's time to go our separate ways. Like you're, you're making uh-huh. life choices that I can't support. And I feel like I know where this road is going. So you have to let people kind of make their mistakes if uh-huh. they're going to. Literally days before we went our separate ways, she announced, I'm pregnant. And I was like, okay, congratulations. Is that a good thing? She said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. My ex-boyfriend is the father. He's recently engaged to someone else. And this was on purpose. And I was like, wow, that's a whole lot to unpack. Oh, good luck. (laughs) (laughs) You know, good, 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 good luck to both of you, honestly. But I I cannot be a part of this. Like, I'm barely holding Mm -hmm. my own life together right now. And so for the next two years, through me going back to work and then – after I went on a disability, I got what I call the Disney version of her life. You know, cute photos on Facebook mm, and okay. everybody's happy. And then I was so uh, about a year after I'd gone on disability, I was home late one night. I was the only one awake and my phone rings and it's our former nanny calling to say, I've, I'm i estranged from my entire family. I living in one of those motels that rents by the hour or the month. I had broken up with my, she had, she, she got together with an interim sort of boyfriend uh, who turns out to have been a sex offender. Oh my so word. That's not great. And th- I, this sentence shouldn't be funny to me. I acknowledge that I am a terrible human for finding it funny, but it sounds like a country song. She said to me, and I've lost my job at the mayonnaise factory. Oh my word. No kidding. And that, in that wow. moment, that's when I realized I didn't realize they had those. Like, I guess I thought that mayonnaise just appeared on the shelf <laughs> in the grocery store. And, but anyway, so she, she then went on to say, I'm, I'm, I'm at a, like a mental breaking point. Can you care for the baby? And I'll check myself into a hospital. And the answer was, of course, like, uh, uh-huh. I, I wish she had called sooner was my only thought. Like, I, I hate that she felt like she had to push until she reached crisis, but her family had told her no. They wouldn't help. So we were sort of the end of the line. They both moved in. So by this point, the child was had just turned two. The mother checked in to a psychiatric facility. And the next morning, I got a knock on my door. And it was Child Protective Services saying, there's been an open case on this child since her birth. You know, Because they were living with a sex offender, because there were okay, right. claims of neglect and substantiated investigations into both abuse and neglect of the child. And so they were like, here's your choices. We can either take the kid right now or you, Kate, can sign on as legal guardian. And I thought, well, I feel like this kid's been through a lot right now. And so let me sign on as legal guardian with the hopes that her biological mother will get her act together. Uh And so that's what we did. And this was all with the the biological mother's enthusiastic Uh agreement. This is what she wanted. So for the next four months, we kind of did what we could. They had each of them. You know, the, the the mother had an individual therapist. The child had a therapist. They had a family therapist. They had one worker who was assigned just to help the mother get a job. They had another assigned just to help the mother get housing. They had an overseeing social worker from Child Protective Services. So six or seven 
different professionals all wrapped around this pair of people to try to get them back on their feet. Mm-hmm. And toward the end of that four-month span, we discovered that the biological mother was making another round of really poor decisions, um, was attempting to use her own child as well as my biological kids. Uh, She was trying to get their social security numbers. She was applying for credit in their name. She got fired from several different jobs. And then she was engaging in sex work. And I was not great with that happening out of my home. Mm -hmm. No kidding. And so we invited her not to stay. And and we told her, look, you can leave the baby with us or you can take her with you. Either way, I have to let Child Protective Services know we'll go from there. And she decided, well, I think it'll be easier for me to get an apartment and a job on my own. I'll leave the kid with you. And I said, "Okay." you know, we we signed on for Uh this. Yes. And and two weeks later, she called me and said, I'm never going to get better. You keep her. How did that affect you? By then, we kind of knew. And and we get a lot of. Even now, it's been it's been seven years, and and we get a lot of feedback to the theme of oh you're so good to take her in she's so lucky to have you and the answer to that is no, no we just we just did the bare minimum sort of in terms of you you help a child if a child you you, you if you can help then you should and if you can't help then there's no shame right and we could help so we did and she has brought so much more to our family Aww. than we could bring to her. How did the other kids adapt? They did very well. They're they're each so it turned out that I ended up with a child every five years. <laughs> uh, it seems to take me about five years to forget how much work babies are and to think <laughs> okay. let's do that again. And so they like the my older two especially were fully aware of everything that was going on and caught the biological mother in the act of, of some of the things that she was doing. And so they were aware. They have all been really excellent in yeah. terms of supporting their new sibling. They just sort of accepted, like, this is a kid that needs help, and we can either put her back into the system and let her figure it out on her own, I guess, or we can provide her with a stable house that understands the kind of trauma she has lived through. But you also raised your children that way. You know, I'm sure that that, that's all part of your family unit, your family dynamics to help one another. Exactly. Exactly. If you can help, then you should. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, surprise, it's a girl. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Did you adopt her? Did you adopt her? Yes. Yes. Her adoption was finalized on her third birthday. So that was easier to remember that than adding another date. Yes, yes, that's right. Well, there's many questions that I want to ask about what you're doing now and your show, etc. We're going to take a quick 30-second break, and when we come back, we're going to hear about it. Thank you. Carol Graham would like to show you the path from misery to miraculous triumph in her fast-paced memoir, Battered Hope. She relates her determination to succeed as someone who experienced one horrendous nightmare after another. Gang raped and left for dead, loss of a child, husband falsely imprisoned, and cancer. Nothing could break her tenacity or faith. No matter what you face, heartache, loss, suffering, or injustice, Carol will illustrate how she became a victor the same way you can. The secret is to never ever give up hope. 
Order your copy at Amazon or batteredhope.blogspot.com. Today we are speaking with Kate Linga, and she has shared in the first part of this broadcast an incredible story of stamina, tenacity, determination, fantastic attitude, and all the other things that could easily have could easily have broken you. And even though at one point when I was reading over your notes, you you said you were broken, but you also are fixed at least the way I am looking at you and I believe the the message that you are giving the audience that no matter what happens have the ability by making the decision to change and with you what I'm hearing is you made that decision not to be a victim no matter what life was throwing at you you chose to be a victor and to carry that out into helping others and that's what we want to talk about now because your show called ignorance was bliss I listened to a couple of the episodes and I know that our audience is going to want to be part of that as well you have worked in the field of forensic and correctional psychology which we already established as well as crisis assessment podcasting seemed like your next natural step which I thought was interesting that you had said that in your notes I never would have put that um, together as you did in drawing that conclusion but you are a storyteller which has been evident already this morning you are a story collector which I think is part of your podcast now one last thing which you must address because I have never heard of this you are a herder of cats (laughs) I knew that would give you a chuckle and it gave me one so first of all tell us what cat herding is and then tell us about your show another way to look at it is people know what a fractal is right the the images that the visual image that's supposed to represent chaos where they're sort of they look like paisleys and swirly mm-hmm, patterns mm-hmm. and flat areas so in a fractal there are areas where almost nothing is happening where it's sort of just a blank space and then there are other areas where there's a lot going on a lot of swirls and dots and flashes of light and whatever those areas where there's a lot going on that's called a chaos attractor that's me like my life just collects it sorry for chuckling but i hear you it's real (laughs) you know what i mean like you have to you just lean in eventually like this is how it's going to be and so we've had now four different times in our marriage that we've had friends or family have to move in with us because they've hit crisis points in their lives. Okay. We we don't go out like searching for sparking it. crisis <laughs> in their life or, or advertising for people. Hey, do you want to bring your chaos into my life? You know, this is just they, I think that people maybe know that we have a high tolerance. Yes. For trauma here and that we are aggressively safe. Like nobody gets abused in my house. That's not going to happen anymore. And if you're struggling out in the world, that breaks my heart. Of course. But my house is a safe place. Mm-hmm. And I'm assertive with that because I don't think there's enough safe places 
in the universe. So I, I, it's just that's it, it. I often feel like I'm I'm juggling many many things. So in the past month, my 83 year old grandmother has had to move in with us because she was found to be abused by her caregiver. So it's just like here's here's another cat. We're just gonna kind of keep everybody in line. No no no, come over here. No no no. Okay, stop. Wait, what are you doing? You know, and and that's just sort of that's my role now. Like. I don't believe that I had to become disabled and go on disability in order to manage this. But if I hadn't gotten sick, I wouldn't have had a nanny and I wouldn't have adopted my fourth kid. And if I hadn't gotten sick, I wouldn't have gone on disability and I wouldn't be home now full time to be able to provide the logistical and emotional support that my grandmother needs right now things like that right no i get it and i think most of the audience is going to relate as well because so so many of the stories if you've listened to any of these podcasts at all are you know they're they seem hopeless and yet you become stronger as a result of that and turn your life which is exactly what you've done and also by helping others which is what you're doing now yeah that's that's the hope and so you know i i left my job in 2014 and spent a couple of years really feeling sorry for myself and I would I would gently disagree about being broken I think that I still am with this caveat there's a a form of art that's primarily Japanese in origin it's called kintsugi k-i-n-t-s-u-g-i and so if they drop pottery for instance, a ceramic, they don't sweep it up and throw it out. They sweep it up, they add gold leaf to the glue, and then they glue it back together <laughs> in a way that emphasizes the broken pieces. Interesting. Wow. And that is what I lean into. I actually have a tattoo of an anatomically correct human heart with Kintsugi gold lines that run through it. Because I really own this idea that mm. you can you can survive broken. It's okay to own your brokenness. You're stronger at the broken places. I I, I spent that I, that didn't come overnight. That wasn't easy. Of and course. and I spent the first several years after I got sick being the girl who got sick, right? And it took a while for me to start to own the concept of no no no. I'm the one who got better. I'm still here. In late 2017, there was a that herding of cats was going on. There was a lot of chaos in my in my house, just with four busy kids. And my husband is, like I said, is an educator, and so he's on the school schedule. And my father had to move in with us because he had a nasty divorce happen and needed a place to land. And here we are. And I realized that I was literally losing my sense of self. I I was losing the sense that I was playing the lead role in my own life. I felt like I was just playing a supporting actor in many other movies. Good analogy. And so I thought, well, what can I do that is mine? I'm to literally find my own voice. And it's helpful that I'm deeply stubborn. And so if you tell me I can't do a thing, then I'm going (laughs) to do it twice. And so I am deaf. I, I hear about... 25% of what normal hearing is. I rely almost entirely on like either earbuds or reading lips. And so you can't have, you can't be deaf and have a podcast, right? Well, 
Here you <laughs> I are. Disagree. Here I am. <laughs> and so I, I, I listened to a lot of either his history or true crime podcasts. That's where my interest fell. And I would hear people ask questions to the effect of what does it mean to be not guilty by reason of insanity or why did this person plead this way or why weren't they found that, you know, th those sorts of questions. What does competency mean? And I would sit there and answer out loud. Now I'm sitting alone on my couch answering out loud to an episode that was recorded six months prior. So the hosts couldn't hear me and that wasn't useful, but I realized I know the answer to these questions. Why don't I start a podcast that explains them? And so Ignorance Was Bliss, initially, oh. the goal was about getting people to understand that there's not that big a difference between an inmate or a visual quotes here crazy person or a being broken or being in the system or whatever. There's not that much difference between that and me. Like it's it's. The only, I used to say when I was working in, in the field is that the only difference between us and them is who has a key because otherwise they're just me. They're just the same people and they had a bad day or a bad series of days, wrong time, wrong place, wrong emotions, wrong people, and here you are on the other side of a jail cell. That's what Ignorance Was Bliss started as. Okay. It was intended to be sort of true crime adjacent. I never looked out. I, I didn't want to be another narrative true crime uh -huh. show, but sort of explaining the system and explaining forensic psychology because everybody gets excited. Oh, forensic <laughs> psychology, that sounds fascinating. And I'm like, yes, except when it's really boring because there's also that. So that's what it started at. And then over time, I don't know, maybe six months to a year, this was all in, in 2018 that I started. And I reached a point where I was like, you know, this is not, there are some unhealthy aspects of the true crime podcasting and as well television media community there's sensationalism there's voyeurism there's this tendency for hosts to drink and swear and call the bad guy bad names and that's a whole subgenre of it that i can't get on board with because yeah they've done some bad things but they're still human beings and they still have family uh -huh. and there still are victims out there and there's victims families and this is all so much more complicated than calling somebody a name and laughing i've gotten some not confrontations that's too strong of a word but i had people telling me you can't call yourself a true crime podcaster and i realized it didn't matter to me what kind of gatekeeping they wanted to use of course i'll just back up then I don't need to jostle for position. There's there's space in the world for both voices. And so over time, my show evolved into it's just it's conversations about a thing, an event, a, a diagnosis, a person in history. Or my personal favorite is when my guest wants to come on and tell me about themselves, about their story, something that gives their readers, their uh -huh. viewers, their listeners a glimpse into who they are when they are not performing their typical shtick. That's what it has become. And so I start every episode with a blank piece of paper in front of me. I don't, I deliberately don't do research. I know some of them through their work. I've listened to some of their shows or watched them on TV or read their books or seen their movies or whatever, but I don't have talking points or plans because when I do that I find that I the way my brain works I suck into okay don't forget to ask this don't forget to say that 
But if I instead stay focused on the screen and the person in front of me, sometimes that's where the best moments are when you ask them a question that they've never been asked before. That's right. Right. And so that's what my show has, is up to now. I'm, I'm well over 400 episodes now. It's, it's, it's not an addiction. I can stop anytime I want, really. Sure um, you can. <laughs> right? How long have you been doing this, did you say? Uh, four and a half years. Okay. All right. And so almost, you know, so it's, I, I typically, I try to release about two episodes a week. It's been a little bit less lately because of situations with my grandmother and the like. But I, I one thing I set out early on was that this show was going to be more fun than stress for me. That was my number one priority. And so I was not going to have a release date Every, every week, it was going to be when I could put an episode together, that's when I would do it. And I was not going to pigeonhole myself into conversations I didn't want to have to the point where I've thrown a couple out because I've been like, I don't want that to be representative of what I do. And I've gotten much more assertive in terms of heading it off before it goes in a direction I'm not comfortable with. So good for me. It's sort of just become this both entity in and of itself of you never know. You never know what's what I'm going to, I never know. So you could never know what I'm going to talk about next or who I'm going to speak with next. And I try to mix it up between established authors and actors and podcasters and also listeners with who are bringing no audience to me at all, but they have a story because everybody has a story. And I love that. And who is your audience? It depends on how... I guess you, how you define that exactly, because I look at each episode as standalone. So my sometimes my audience changes depending on, like, they're just coming in because they want to hear their favorite actor or podcaster or writer talk about a thing. And then they disappear and never come back. But most of my audience, they are adults. They understand that life has complexity and nuance. And they want to hear a story, you know. They want to remember that they are not the only ones out there that feel vulnerable or mixed up or angry or frustrated or whatever it is, because I have a lot of space for my guests to feel how they feel and say what they want to say, as long as they're not being overtly offensive Mm -hmm. or, you know, right, gross to get technical. And so I don't have to agree with everything you say to have a good conversation with you about it. One of the things about my show that I made a decision about early on is that I didn't want it to be a narrative where I'm only telling someone else's story. But I also didn't want it to be a soliloquy where I'm only telling my own story. Uh What you're hearing is conversations. I want it to feel like you're at a party you don't really especially want to be there and you definitely don't want strangers to ask you weird questions, but you catch somebody else having a a fantastic conversation and you want to listen in. I have a question for you that I was going to ask at the beginning of the show and I didn't. And I've asked a couple other people this question as well. And I'm very interested in hearing your answer. And that is, do you recall anything that uh, during your coma that you were in? It's mostly just completely blank. And when I came out of the coma, I, I literally didn't know my own name. I didn't recognize the people around me. I did not have the go into the white light or see dead relatives experience 
during the coma. And there's actually the, the one of the things that I did because I had this word aphasia and also I still have complete amnesia for the year 2009. It's pretty much gone. Oh, wow. Really? I read, I used to blog. And so I've read my blog. And so like, as for instance, I know that I went to Paris in November of 2009, but I have no actual real memory of it. I've just learned it from reading my blog. And so one of the things that they do at Mass General is they have social workers that work with the families to try and sort of shore them up. And if you ever have, if you've ever sent a kid to nursery school or you know preschool they have these like all about me posters my name is here's where i live here's my favorite color yes. here's my favorite music that kind of thing well the, they had my family fill that out for me and it serves the purposes of both giving the family something to do something tangible to do and it also serves the purpose of reminding the medical staff that this is not just a lump in the bed that this is a human being with preferences and a life outside of the ICU, but I used it in a third way, which my husband would tell you is completely on brand. Like if you give me two choices, I will find a third. That's how I roll. But I would lie there on my side at night on the side that did not have the grapefruit size hole through it. And I would stare at this poster and memorize it. That's how I learned my name. That's how I learned my children's names. That's how I learned who my favorite music was. So it it was a real blank slate when I came out of the coma. And I didn't have any memory at all for a long time. And then months and months later, after I was, I think it was a year, it was after I was home again and allowed to leave the house again. So quite a ways Mm -hmm. after this. We were driving through a neighboring town. I live in Salem, Massachusetts. And we were driving through one of the nearby towns to attend one of my kids, I don't know, sports ball games of some sort. And... I, I'm not prone to anxiety. It's just not my thing typically, but I had a whopping panic attack in the middle of the, like my husband was driving and all of a sudden I was like pull over and I was sick and I was hyperventilating and, and both of us were sort of taken aback by what is happening. And there's anybody who, who, this is, this is, this was in Danvers. There's a mall in this part of Massachusetts and there's a restaurant that I'm not sure whether it's still there or not, but it was called Su Chang and it, it was a really, really good Chinese restaurant back in the day. I can't go there now because I have a literal phobia of the place because that's when I recalled that during the coma, I had a dream of sorts that instead of taking me to the emergency room after I was discharged from the maternity ward, because that's what had to happen. The maternity unit was like, you're fine, go home. And I couldn't walk up the steps to our apartment. So my husband turned around and took me to the ER. And that's how I ended up airlifted to Boston. But in this dream, instead of driving me to the ER, he drove me to that building, which in my dream was not Su Cheng's Chinese restaurant. It was like a urgent care maternity unit kind of place Mm. and in my dream I went in there they they sort of brought me back to a room and I laid down and died and so that was what I recalled a year later from the experience of being in coma okay so we are running out of time and I could listen to you for hours I'm sure you've heard that people say that to you before but bottom line what message of hope considering everything that you have gone through and the people that you've also spoken with on your podcast, what message of hope 
do you have for the audience? I say it every episode, and it's part of my my disclaimer at the beginning of each episode, which is read by different friends and family and other podcasters and the like. It used to be read by my father, who ultimately did die by suicide, but I think it's because he could say the words to other people, but he couldn't hear them Hmm. for himself. And that is the phrase, you matter. You you matter. You, You may not think that you do. You may not want to. Sometimes we don't want to, especially when we hit bottom or when we feel like we're alone or we're, or sometimes when we're starting to turn the corner and it's so hard. It's so resilience is so hard. I get that. I do. You know, the only time in my adult life that I've reached a point of having suicidal thought was not when I was at my sickest, but when they told me this is it, this is your new baseline. This is your new normal. And I, up until then I thought, of course I'm sad. I'm sick. Look at how sick I am. Of course, I'm sad. And then they were like, okay, no, but this is it. And I couldn't cope. I, I couldn't. And I didn't. I, I, I told my husband what I was at. I had him bring me to the emergency room and was admitted to a psychiatric unit myself for a couple of days until I stabilized. And all of that was to say that I didn't want to matter anymore. I wanted to stop trying. Because it was, it's so hard. It's yes. so hard to keep reinventing yourself and to keep finding meaning and to keep accepting that every time you get hit with a new thing from life, it's like pieces of you get carved away and you lose pieces of your identity and pieces of your functionality and feelings of relevance in the world. But you matter. And if you don't matter, that's... That's what I call the brain weasels. The brain weasels lie. That's the little chittering in the back of your skull that lies. They lie. The brain weasels lie. You matter. You are important. And if you, as an individual, are not important to me, it's because I don't know you. And so reach out and talk to me. Join a Facebook group, either mine or anything that seems interesting to you. Join a Discord server. You know, reach out in whatever way you can. If you can't do it in person, then online is fine. Store-bought is fine, right? And because you do matter. You matter incredibly more than you realize. And if I don't know you yet, I can't tell you that in a, in a, in a genuine way. But once I do know you, then you, are, then you matter. And I need people to know that. That was a beautiful ending, a beautiful synopsis definitely touched my heart and I realize and know for sure that it touched others as well. You put all of that pain, all of that trauma, everything that you went through and capsulized it into you matter. I'm speechless. I thank you. That was incredible. That was an incredible story and I thank you so much for sharing it in such honesty and a little bit raw, but that's okay, right? That's me. That's you know, I'm right. not very that, polished. That, so yes, no, and thank and you for the, the chance to talk it through. That's, you know, it's I love there are that. times where I forget how because you're so focused on the moment, on hurting the cats, yes, right? You're so yes. focused on that that you forget the bigger picture, and the bigger picture is wow, that's a lot, yes. and you don't get through the bigger picture a lot. You get through the bigger picture a step at a time. What's in your future? I, well, in a couple of weeks, I'm having spinal surgery. Not looking forward to that a whole lot. No kidding. Um, So there'll be some intensive recovery and healing after that. And I am working on an actual scripted 
true crime podcast, which I never thought I would do. But a friend of mine brought it to me. He found this tiny little excerpt in a newspaper. It's from a case that happened in Washington State in 1977. There's like nothing out there about it. It's not been covered on other podcasts or written about whatever. But on the victim, who was a a 14-year-old girl, on her gravestone, it says, although she sleeps, her memory lives on. Mm. Except it doesn't. She matters. Her story needs to be told, not in a sensationalistic way, but in a this is how the system worked and didn't work. Right. So and, you, and so that's coming up. And is that going to be a new platform for you then, you think? The, I, I At least, I don't know if we'll do it more than once, but okay. we, we got the, okay. uh, it's called the FOIA, the Freedom of Information Act request was approved. And so I have literally a foot high pile of paperwork you know I have all of the police notes and Mm -hmm. documentation Mm -hmm. and the court proceedings and everything and so we're going to tell this one girl's story because her story needs to be told so that's a project that I've really been looking forward to because I used to want to write that was as you know as even as a child I wanted to be a writer I always thought later I'll do it later I'll do it later and then after I came out of the coma one of the skills that I had lost was the ability to handwrite. I had to relearn. So if you compare my handwriting to now, as Mm. opposed to pre-2010, it's very, very different. And I have a hard time with words and a hard time functioning and processing and sort of planning and that. And so this is a big project and it's ambitious for me. And I'm finding it both terrifying and I'm delighted by the challenge. And so that's next up. I think you're pretty excited. I really am. (laughs) Well, thank you again, Kate, for being on Never Ever Give Up Hope. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Never Ever Give Up Hope, featuring Carol Graham. Did you know that most people succeed because they are determined to? Quitting was never an option. Carol loves your comments and will respond to each one. So please subscribe and review this podcast. A rating of five stars would be outstanding and appreciated. Remember, if you are still here, there is always hope.